Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about imposter syndrome. Are you interested in promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. So this episode, we are talking about imposter syndrome, which is that sense that a lot of professionals have across lots of industries. This is not just a tech job thing where people feel that they were either hired incorrectly or they don't meet the bar or they're not quite good enough and they're just waiting to be found out. Somehow you don't fit in. I can say I'm I, I'm a chronic sufferer of this one. I've always felt that way in any position. I that yeah, constantly feel that way. On the plus side, it makes me bust my ass to prove I'm not, which may account for some things, but in reality, I'm always feeling like, yeah, waiting for one oops for those that'll be the last straw and I'm out the door. And it's just, it's very annoying at times, but, and it really sometimes gets in the way of interactions with coworkers. It's for me, it's also really colored interactions with superiors because I'm afraid they're feeling me out. No, well, yeah, Tried. it's more than just annoying. <laughs> it's, it's career damaging. Yeah. So, but uh, you know, I, I don't know where it comes from and but it is, uh, is part of it. So I, I've suffered from it for much of my career, but I was talking to a friend of mine who works in the budget office of local government, and I discovered that she also has a very similar sense of waiting to be discovered and waiting to be found out as not being good enough. And she helps manage the budget of the county. Like she's She's doing serious work with serious implications, and she has the same kind of fear. And that was part of the reason that we wanted to talk about this. Um, Ken and I have talked about this several times throughout our career, having worked together. And Jack and, I, Jack and I have talked about it a little bit as well. For me, it most comes up in places like job interviews, like when you're interviewing somebody else for a position, or you are trying to explain a code path, or you're trying to explain a technology that you have built to somebody else, and you are worried that they are silently judging you for, wow, I can't believe this bozo built this thing. And the whole concept of finding yourself in a new job because you've, you know, you've done whatever you've found yourself in a new job and realizing these are all new people. They expect you to be an expert in, in some crazy subset of fields. And yeah. are you that person you got there, but did you play the game or was it because you got there because you're good? That's where it's really hit me most. And I've also, not that it's unusual, switched jobs reasonably frequently in, in, in my career. And that's when it's bad is when I'm in the new place. And obviously, yeah, there's ramp up at any new position, that, you know, and as you get more seniors, sometimes that takes longer because you're expected to be involved in more things. And it just, really feel like I never get there internally. And, you know, and even when I end up the subject matter expert and am, com and am competent at it, I still internally feel like I've, 
I'm, I'm just inches away from imploding everything. Yeah. The, the risk from the, it's definitely very acute when you first start a new position or a, you've transferred to a new team or a new organization or however that works. Um, because you're trying to prove yourself. And I've had this sense ever since I started my first professional gig years and years and years ago with the, wow, um, they're paying me real money to do what I consider fooling about with computers. And <laughs> all of these people I'm working with have computer science degrees and I have a journalism degree. What? Like, how long is it going to be before they say, uh, no, you're, you're out. You're, you're, you're just not, you're not fit. Yeah. And I was, um, I remember being distinctly amazed at my first performance evaluation. Like I'd been there for a year. My boss calls me in and has me close the door because he wants to talk to me about my performance. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is going to be it. Like they're going to read me the riot act. And he was being very effusive and very friendly and like, oh yeah, you've been doing really great. And people are seeing how you're really fitting into the culture here. And you're, you're respected by your peers technically. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you're, you're doing great. What? I, it took me so long to internalize that, especially in the beginning of my career. And a lot of people start that way. They start their careers and they're thinking, okay, well, I've landed a job at a startup, at a big company, at wherever it is. And they're trying to prove themselves, but they also don't have a lot of experience to, to lean back on. And it makes them feel really inferior. And it's a really difficult position to be in. Or take extra risks to pull off some project or some technical feat to prove yourself for the team that just ends up being risky and not based on the standards and foundations of the team you're joining. There is that too. And that's a very serious. And I've seen that before. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to acknowledge is that people that look different or are female, especially in the IT computer science world, really tend to suffer from imposter syndrome a lot because there's a lot of pressure to supposedly be as good as other people on the team. And that's also usually not the case. The, the females that I've had the privilege of working with in my career over the years have been some of the most valuable members of the team. And I wish we had more of them. Well, it's interesting you bring this up because one of the, the big risks or the big challenges for joining a team and feeling like you fit into the organization is seeing people who act like you and look like you and think the way you do and speak with the accent that you have. And if you are in a minority group, whatever minority group that is, it is doubly challenging and that cannot be stressed enough, especially in the U S the tech market is dominated by men, like embarrassingly dominated by men and it's largely white men. And especially in some of the disciplines, um, in the courses of study, it's a very hostile environment for outsiders. It's a hostile environment for anybody in a minority group to join, which further reinforces the Hey, you don't belong here. Hey, you're not really good enough. Hey, you're not really. And even though they are just as bright and just as capable and often bring different perspectives that are more valuable because they're different, they feel worse about doing it. And in, in the worst moments, uh, imposter syndrome is, it's like pl playing a cybersecurity attack against a person's brain. A person with 
imposter syndrome tends to overreact to uh, threatening situations. And when that happens, uh, that it's basically hijacking your amygdala and turning off your higher brain functions and enforcing the, the, the fight or flight, the basic you know, survival instincts. And it it's really can be like forcing people into that that fight or flight zone, which of course makes the situation worse. And I've definitely seen people and read about people um, that have gone through that that fight or flight uh, situation because you know they're on a televised interview and they kind of shut down and can't respond to questions. And that's you know obviously that doesn't make for good interviews. Obviously that doesn't make for furthering your career and quite it affects it quite the opposite. And so this can be a really a devastating uh, situation for one's career. Almost self-fulfilling prophecy in that, you know, you yeah, think you're exactly. bad, you're scared. And then, you know, some 3 a.m. explosion when you're on call and you freak out and freeze and things stay down longer or you make a mistake because you're just in that mode. You you end up doing exactly what you're scared of doing. And we talked about that enough on this podcast where the, the correct initial reaction to a disaster is to remain calm. It's to as calmly as you can assess the situation, start understanding what's going on rather than panicking and either doing nothing or panicking and restarting something or making it worse. And when you don't have that confidence in your abilities, it gets really difficult. Um, I started a new position recently and there's always that lead time of that, that becoming a full member of the team kind of thing where you are learning the ropes and learning the systems and understanding the documentation. And a coworker of mine went on vacation, like vacation vacation where she didn't bring a phone with her or anything. And it was essentially just me running the shop for a little while. And that was what it took to turn, to turn the tide for me of, no, no, I'm actually a valued member of this team because I'm able to handle this even with a lot of fires happening while she was out. I was able to correctly and quickly and properly handle all the things. And that gave me the confidence to say, okay, I'm, I'm not just screwing up. I'm not just a problem. I actually am valuable and I'm doing the right thing. But it's hard. Yeah, for for me, this again, I also recently changed positions and not going to get into specifics, but the technology team, it's a small company and in less than six months went to 40% of what it had been. I mean, literally four out of 10 people remain. Me being wow, one of them hurts. and having to pick up a lot of stuff because the people that wrote it are gone and it happened suddenly. And that meant oh, there's a lot of documentation that didn't get done. And the, the relationship was soured in the severing. We can't really go to them and ask for any help. So we just have to figure it out. Get to bite the bullet and go for it and figure <laughs> it out. And I've and, seen really similar things on a team that's expanded very quickly and very fast. 
um, you know, teams that have doubled in size or more over the last six months, and everyone's green, usually the first few you new know, sort of founding members of the team have left. And there's everybody looking at each other over Zoom trying to figure out how yeah. does this work? What are the best decisions here? Who needs to own this? What decisions do we need to, to wrestle with? But it's been really difficult for me in the past few I months bet. I bet. with the whole imposter because everybody's looking at me for answers. I didn't write it. I can't ask the author. They didn't write anything down. I don't know. I don't have the answer. I don't even know where to go for the answer. You're going to have to be patient. I'm sorry. I'm going and... to figure out the answers for your particular problem in sprint number 17. And we're currently <laughs> on sprint number two. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's that bit from Beetlejuice where it's like, take a number. And yeah. <laughs> now serving and, three. And it really feels like that. That I have to put people off and just say, we're going to get to it at some point. But I can't tell you when, and you're going to have to deal with it. And uh, that sounds so familiar with the position I'm in, where team wants a top notch observability platform. And you know, we're talking all three pillars, logs, metrics, traces. And the current lay of the land is really quite immature. And you don't you don't go up that maturity ladder, uh, those steps, you know, overnight. Yeah. And everybody is expecting that, that I have those answers. And, and I'm like, I got to address one thing at a time. Yeah. And different teams, um, different developer teams are at different places in that, in that maturity ladder. So some teams, uh, you have a really great sense of observability and are looking at you know, how to implement tracing and have excellent dashboards based on the four golden signals and really good stuff. While another team, you know, they can't figure out that you new know, metrics probably shouldn't go into the logging system. Yeah, but there's mistakes that we make as well. Um, having we, we, the members of the podcast have all spent significant time on a observability platform, but there are similar decisions that we make at times that other teams are going, wait, what, what are you, what are you doing? Um, just, just to be fair to, to everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, when I was interviewing for the position, I got one of the, most of the other people were much younger. And I said, I, it, you know, I'm not saying I'm smarter. I'm older and have already fucked up that many times. I've already made the mistakes and I try not to make them again. There are two types of system administrators, those <laughs> that have fucked up production and those that are about to fuck up production. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, imposter syndrome for me is worse. The farther into my career I get. Yeah. Um, in the beginning, it was, I think more justified, more rational to, to think that, okay, I am, a new employee. I've never really worked professionally. I don't really know how to write an email to, you know, senior leadership or whatever. I, I've never done that before and right. I'm learning it as I go and I'm terrified about that. And now it's the, there's all kinds of other things that I'm supposed to know that yeah. I'm worried that I don't know correctly. Um, for me though, for me, absolutely the, the worst part is interviewing candidates for positions. I hate interviewing. 
I think I we all test interviewing. I, I love that it is the worst part of the job. I know that I am poor at judging people for their skills because precisely because you know, it's the judging people for their skills, but, and you know, you take the whole imposter syndrome, you, you flip it on its head, you know, you're at, you know, big, crazy it company that's, you know, highly respected in the field. And then you're interviewing this person who wants to be the new guy on the team who probably has all the imposter syndrome and, and the tables are just completely turned. And I, that is what really makes me uncomfortable. And honestly, I prefer interviewing from a position of a big company than a small company because with a big company, it generally works that you're interviewing candidates for the company at large or for the engineering organization at large and not necessarily for your team. So you're one of several interviewers and generally the interviewers all come to a consensus about, okay, we are, we're doing this thing and we interviewed a candidate and the candidate was not so strong in this area was really good over here. How do we feel they fit into the larger organization kind of thing? Whereas with a small company, it's generally you and one other person are interviewing somebody to work alongside you two weeks from now. And the stakes are very different. I so prefer the latter. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's tough because uh, right now we're interviewing and the entire technology staff is eight people. The whole staff for the entire company, not just one team. And yeah, I mean, everybody's got to do a little bit of everything. We're not hiring for a specific area. We don't have that luxury. You've got to be a jack of all trades because everybody's got to take care of everything. And, and again, but, that's a super hard position to hire for. Oh, we, we've had a rec open for quite a while. And I was told just this end of this week that nothing's even been clearing HR. They haven't even had all the buzzwords. So that yay. hurts. <laughs> and conversely, I work for a very large organization right now. And the way the interviewing process works is you have a pool of basically all of engineering is eligible to interview and they expect everybody to, to do their part and interview over the course of the year. So you're frequently interviewing candidates who you'll never work with, or you'll never really get to know all that well, that they're for some other team and you're just needed to assess, you know, particular technical skills. So it is, it's a different kind of hard. Yeah. Uh, although I will say that I absolutely detest both taking and giving coding interviews. I think oh. it is a terrible way to do things. <laughs> I understand why people do it, but I really can't stand it. And I really, really hate conducting coding interviews. Ooh. Yeah, but now you're, you're conducting them rather than failing them. That is true. Um, I have, I have flamed out on several coding interviews in ways that were really not like not a measure of my skill or ability and and again imposter syndrome you're in a high pressure high stakes sort of thing somebody's looking over your shoulder and your brain yeah. just doesn't work the right way anymore because your amygdala has been hijacked and you know, you're in that fight or flight mode, you're on call in an interview and somebody's watching you. What's the next step? Yeah. I can't remember the last time when I was on call and something was bloating up that 
I was writing code with somebody watching. We're trying to figure out how to invert a binary tree. Yeah. (laughs) Or whatever stupid algorithm example it would be. Yeah. Um, Sort this list of numbers without using an array. Go. (laughs) Or whatever the, the trick is. Yeah. Um, but but that's just one of the areas in which imposter syndrome like seeps into everything that we do. I know that when I'm first submitting a PR to a new team or to a new part of the organization, or I'm touching somebody else's code and changing something, I'm always terrified. It's like, okay, did I did I not think about how all the libraries interact? Did I not think about this? Like, Hang on, stop. It's a two line PR. This should be fine. <laughs> but I always have that initial like palms start to sweat, worried a little bit about. It's like, no, just get over it. Just do it. Once I do it, once I'm interacting with the team, once I've started down the path of whatever it is, I feel better. Um, and I'm able to handle things. And I'm able to kind of correctly sequence things in my head. But that first one is always challenging. And I know for a lot of folks, especially for people who suffer from this the way I do, that it can be a real impediment to engaging with other teams, to showing people how good you are at doing work, to saying, hey, I deserve a promotion. I deserve whatever that thing is um, and going for it because you feel like I'm not really qualified. I'll, I'll just wait for next year. Yeah. Hiding your strengths is, is not the yeah. way forward. It's showcasing never, your strengths never, and, never and being confident that those strengths are indeed your strengths. It's like I was saying that that the big turning point for me when my coworker was on vacation and feeling like, Oh no, I'm actually like involved here and I'm doing it and I'm not, I'm not just playing along. I'm actually driving this. It's huge. But you got to get there. So what techniques do you guys use to sort of overcome your own imposter syndrome or help other folks on the team realize that they are top players on the team and top contributors? For me, the biggest thing is when I'm helping other people, especially um, junior employees or new employees to a team, is to proactively identify the things they're doing well and you don't need to to dump praise upon them but call it out and say hey that's a really cool solution hey i I hadn't thought about that way and that's really elegant or whatever because that kind of feedback lets them know yes they're doing the right thing and i try very actively to do that it's it's really interesting that that's part of your methodology because right now living in the netherlands the dutch culture is very direct you don't get superfluous praise they very very direct um and we're not used to that which sometimes can hurt but it also means if you are praising it can be taken as very high praise um so you have to moderate it a little but that being said, it is, you know, I, I do it when I'm, hey, I do, I, my mind surfaces and, hey, I'm not the expert in this. I may not be, know everything about it, but this is how, I, you know, how I look at it or this is what I think. And I, I do a lot of couching my own statements with outs for being wrong. <laughs> but I mean, that is literally just playing into imposter syndrome again. That, that, no, that's, and it's, you're back on the other side. It's horrible. But it's just what I end up doing. Yeah, the other tack that I take is I 
the whoever is either my direct supervisor or the team lead or the tech lead or the project lead or whoever it is, I try early on to get them into a, a, a very quick private conversation and just say, hey, look, I know that I suffer from imposter syndrome. I really do appreciate if you just give me direction, either positive or negative, say, hey, you're on the right track or, hey, that's not quite a good solution, but give me feedback early so I don't go too far down and then panic about things. If I don't hear anything, I'm going to start assuming badness. And especially in the beginning of a relationship with somebody, um, having a little bit of of hinting from them puts me greatly at ease. And I just, I've learned to ask for it. Early in my career, I would do that. I would periodically go to my supervisor and just say, how, how am I doing? Please be, please be honest. And, you know, get some some honest feedback i know that when i'm in performance evaluations i don't want to leave the conversation without sort of directly asking for and addressing where am i weak what can i do better what can i focus on to to improve and i hate it when they don't give me an answer (laughs) Do you ever ask the other side of that question of what do you see my strengths as being? Because obviously you know what your strengths are, but do you ask for, do you solicit that input from other people? Not really. No. Interesting. Because the way my brain is wired, I find that to be extraordinarily helpful for combating um, imposter syndrome. And maybe I should. Yeah. I tend to ask either vanilla, how am I doing, or Hey, what am I doing wrong? Type of question. But not, what am I doing right? The other part of doing this is finding ways to build good team culture. So new members of the team, be it a junior employee or a a transfer to the team or somebody like Ken or I who have suffered through this for a long time. um, Building a culture, a friendly culture that gives appropriate criticism and feedback about things and you're not afraid to make a mistake. You're not afraid to kind of ask a question about something because you don't have that sense of, I don't know how to describe it, but that, that, that sense when some, some teams cultures are built around a very competitive mindset about you want to be the best, the top, the whatever. And that culture doesn't work for me. That, that culture really drops me the wrong way and puts me in a, a bad place pretty quickly. So trying to foster a good work environment, trying to foster that, that continuous exchange of pointers and tips and ideas in friendly ways, but also in corrective ways of saying, Hey, that particular approach, not so great. We should be doing this instead, but if you do it in the right way, it builds camaraderie and it helps lessen other people's suspicion that they're inadequate. So there are two culture-isms that I've learned to recognize. There's the culture-ism where we have to move fast. Everybody just throws stuff against the wall and see what fits, see what sticks. And we, we, we just have to go fast. And I've learned to recognize that because that also that also brings in that competition about you know who can solve a problem the fastest or in some in some way that lets you uh, unblock and move forward. And that usually 
also creates a mess. But there's that competitive edge there. And I instinctively will will back off and slow down and start asking questions in that kind of environment. There's the other cultureism that I've learned to recognize and appreciate because I found it's healthy and I enjoy it. It's a culture where you're always you're doing peer reviews, you're always having questions asked. There there's not really competition, there's not so much criticism. Um, but I commonly get asked, you know, have I looked at this specific Amazon service? Do I know about that specific Amazon service or yeah. is there a reason I've chosen something different? And just the, not so much the criticism, but the willingness, the freedom to say, I, I agree with your PR. That looks great. But have you considered this? On the topic of PRs, one of the things that I try to do, especially for, um, for minor things is I call out the fact that it's like, look, this is a nitpicky detail, but you really should run this through, you know, the, the winter or whatever, because we have a style guide that we're trying to follow, even if it's not perfect. And it really helps to make code more readable or, Hey, you're using single quotes and double quotes. You're mixing the two. You should just pick one and call it out as a nitpick. Call it out as a, I know this isn't changing like the structural flow of your program. This isn't changing like how you implemented the solution, but it needs to be fixed. But don't call it out in the like, um, jerk, you didn't run this through the linter. Come on, what's wrong with you? Come on, Terraform format. Uh, why didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that not too long ago, first PR for an organization that didn't have anything written down about guides or anything else. And hey, you didn't run it through the linter. Didn't. No, we had to run through a linter and you didn't tell me which one to choose. And if that's the only problem, I, okay. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a trigger point for me is I know of good practices that I followed in the past. Now I'm over here and how do I help encourage a team to, to develop and adopt more healthy uh, PR and code review practices? And especially when there just aren't any uh, standards available or practices already pre-existing. Uh, a silly thing that I do is every PR that I submit, I tag it in the, the Git commit uh, with the JIRA ticket or whatever ticket. So you can exactly you know, trace back you know, why did this work you know, three years from now. And it's the little things like that that, that I encourage people to follow. But I'm not always I successful. Also, I also do that um, in part because I've worked in environments as a consultant where you're tracking time. I've worked in environments okay. where you're working with a large team of people on the same code repo. It's not just two developers. It's hundreds or even thousands of people working on a repo. And being able to say, no, 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 no. This commit that I, I type, that I added, that I'm changing a flag in something. Well, you could either be really, really descriptive in the... PR's description, or you can link it to the ticket and say, for major service, foo, I'm changing bar. And then yep. you have a link to the ticket. So you don't have to be really verbose in your actual PR, but it's really clear to future you what you were doing. So Jack, you had mentioned an ACM article that you read a little while ago that talked about this. Um, is that something we can throw into the show notes? 
Yeah, we'll have that in the show notes. Um, I read it in last month's uh, ASIM Communication Magazine. And it was a, a computer science researcher. He was female who suffered really quite heavily from imposter syndrome issues. And she's come out on the other side and, and really realized you know, what was going on. And it's much of the things that we've talked about previously in this episode of knowing what your strengths are and not being ashamed of your strengths, understanding what imposter syndrome does to your brain and how it could hijack your amygdala. Um, and, and things like that, especially women deal with because the author's female about having to deal with sexual harassment in the very male dominated field. Um, so I thought that article was really, was really helpful in me being able to identify not only the imposter syndrome that, that sometimes I feel, but the way other people experience this as well and how that affects them, which I think will make me better able to, to recognize that and help avoid that in the future. I really appreciate this article. Um, a lot of folks have not taken diversity or other, other people's viewpoints enough into consideration. And that's come to light in the last couple of years worth of political news and whatever else but it's a place that we all can spend some time in our professional lives and help our coworkers and help the people around us to build a better culture and to take better care of our of our fellow humans so folks give it a read yeah one of the things i've really tried hard to do lately is is give good positive comments about when i see a job well done when somebody gives me a hand and is very helpful and just trying to show folks that I appreciate uh, them on the team, whether they're on my team or just giving me a hand and trying to build that, that, that culture of appreciation. I think, you know, sprint reviews or retrospectives are a good place for that. You can, it doesn't have to be, you know, they always say, well, we did good, but you can always make it personal that somebody did really helpful or whatever. And it can go a long way to making people feel more accepted in that they are doing a good job and bring that imposter syndrome down a little. It just might be a small thing to you, but it might be huge for them. Yeah. And trust me, as somebody who suffers from this, it is appreciated when people call out both yeah. the good and the bad. So you know what you're doing right and what you're not doing right anyway. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We'd also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your, th your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brenda Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night. You're not good enough. Let's see, really? I was going the other direction. I was going to do the, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and doggone it, people like me. I like your version better.